0: Hello and welcome back everyone. My name is Karina Berry. I'm the Director of Outreach at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare and today I'm talking with Jenny Tesmer, who is a Len fellow and she'll be sharing a little bit more about this podcast series she's working on and sharing a little bit more about today's interview. So hi Jenny, how are you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, doing okay. <laughs> How are you? Good, good. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the second episode in your series. Can you share a little bit more
1: about who you interviewed?
0: Yeah, so I interviewed for this. So for this particular episode, um, I was really curious to hear a little bit more about the the side of parents or foster parents or adoptive parents um, so just totally different perspective. And I interviewed a woman named Gail. She shared with me some of her experiences with um, with participating as an emergency foster parent, uh, shared about her experiences with the kids that she has lovingly, some of them even like kept in touch with to this day, um, and really talked a lot about how disability unfortunately is not as presented to foster parents um it sounds like disability was something that would more more or less like come up while the child was in foster care um and to no one's fault it's just that i think that like the parent may have not realized that oh my child has a disability and then once the child is in or was in Gail's care, um, what would happen is maybe school would get involved or something like that and, you know, bring it to Gail's attention or Gail would bring it to the school's attention. Um, so she had picked up on some of those instances happening with a possible diagnosis. Um, there were also times, too, when... Uh, she did know about a disability so it it kind of was there but it just wasn't as i think talked about with foster care parents it sounds like there might not be a lot of training on disability um for parents who do want to participate as foster parents or i i guess perhaps maybe adoptive parents too um and so just a very different perspective on like the the care side <laughs> And Jenny, would you like to say anything else to our listeners about your episode? Um, you know, I, I just hope everyone listens with some open eyes, open hearts around the, the care and the love that foster parents really put in towards, towards the kids who are staying with them for however long. Before the episode begins, I want to let you know that this interview contains subject matter relating to the sexual and physical abuse of minors. In addition, there's also content covering youth experiencing abandonment, substance use, mental health, and suicide. This afternoon, we have Gail, who is sitting with me here, and we're just going to talk a little bit about foster care and how that intersects with um, neurodevelopmental disabilities. Um, My name is Jenny. I am a social work student here at the U, and um, although I am a social work student, I don't work in the child welfare program, so this is a pretty brand new area for me, at least on the academic level, but on like a personal level, um, I am an adoptee, so I have been in foster care in the past, but it was more... um, it was very different back then because it was in the 90s and it was also in South Korea. So I know foster care is done differently depending on state. And so I can't imagine country how that looks. And then also in the school social work, we talk a little bit about disability in our classes, but it doesn't really intersect a lot. And so we really appreciate you talking with
1: us, Gail, and you know sharing your
0: expertise on what you know sure. as well.
1: So I'm Gail Meyer, and um, my husband and I have done foster care in Hennepin County for the last 22 years. We started off doing long-term foster care, which is um, usually anywhere from six months to could be up to three years, depending on the, the child. Oh, wow. Okay. And then for the last, um, I guess, about 16 years, we've done shelter foster care, which is the emergency mm. foster care. Mm-hmm. So when the f- kids first come in the system, they usually go into some type of emergency shelter Um, home or facility, and um, that usually is uh, anywhere from three to five days to up to three months.
0: Okay, I see. Wow. Okay, so then for emergency, like how, do you have enough notice or when do you find out that a a child will be living with you? So
1: Hennepin County uses a facility called St. Joseph's Home for Children, which is run by Catholic Charities, and um, we... Usually have, well, sometimes it might be a three-hour three, three hour notice, and sometimes it could be a day or two that okay. we know the kids might be coming in.
0: Okay, I see. Do you have a lot of repeat kids, or is that mostly a one-time? Hopefully it's a one-time,
1: but yeah. <laughs> sometimes kids come through more than once, unfortunately. Um, we've had some kids that have come through multiple times, but that's... Mm-hmm not usually the case and we we hope that's not the case over mm-hmm. the last twenty two years we've had close to 600 kids come through our home
0: oh wow so
1: okay. lots and lots of kids um, yeah. doing emergency shelter care we often have kids um, like 50 kids a year
0: okay I see yeah what was the longest time that a kid has stayed with you then
1: um our longest is. Probably about three years, three and a half years. We had a couple of um, teenage girls that we actually, they were not um, able to be adopted, so they were in the long-term foster care program, and Mm. um, they actually aged out with us at 18. They still continued in the the. 18 to 21 foster care program mm-hmm. um, but were on the, um, decided to live on their own for that part of it one was in college and the other one was working
0: okay I see do you ever get sub- do you get siblings pretty frequently
1: oh yeah those those okay. two were not siblings oh I see they um, they actually ended up being very good friends that were uh, we had overlapping through the years but okay we often get um, sibling groups of um, five six kids. Okay. I see. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> wow. It is. Okay. It is.
0: And how many kids? Do you, do you have kids of your own?
1: So our oldest son is now 30, and he was 7 when we started. Okay. And then we have a daughter who's 25, and she was 3 when we started. Okay. And then we adopted two foster kids along the way. Um, one is now 21, um, and the other one just turned 18.
0: Okay. I see. Okay. Wow. That's, so your kids kind of have, you know, other siblings then, too, if you want to look at them that Correct. way too, as well. Yes. That's awesome. Do you keep in touch with a lot of the kids that you foster? I do. I do.
1: Um, maybe not a lot, considering close to 600. But, yeah. But <laughs> um, a lot of kids have found me through Facebook through the years, and it's fun to catch up with them that way.
0: Absolutely. Very cool. Yes. Very cool. And then my understanding is you also have a background in social work. I do. I okay. do. Were you in child welfare when you were in social work?
1: No, um, I actually uh, graduated from Concordia College up in Moorhead back in 83. And at that point, when I came out with a degree in social work and English, um, social workers were making like 13000 a year. And I said, I can't live on that. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, that I think lit the fire in me that at age 36, I decided I wanted to do foster care. Okay. And take care of kids that way and use my my knowledge taking care of kids.
0: Very cool, though, Gail. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, Tracy here at um, at the School of Social Work has been, you know, talking about how you're very involved and very strong advocate for children who are needing foster care. Sounds like emergency or non-emergency. Yeah, through the years I've done a lot
1: of um, training of other foster parents, um, training of initial, like, when—, when Foster parents are trying to decide if they want to get into it or not. I do um, some speaking at adoption events. Um, and then for the last couple of years, I've been with Tracy on a child well-being committee. Okay. From Hennepin County.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Um, so then, Gail, kind of looking also or starting to think a little bit here about the, you know, the intersectionality of disability and Um, the foster care system or child welfare system, I guess, too, if you really want to look at, like, the the broad spectrum of it. Um, You and I have talked a little bit about what neurodevelopmental disability means. And we've talked a little bit about, like, what specific disabilities that, you know, fall into neurodevelopmental. Um, Would you say that there have been um, quite a few children that you've had who have a neurodevelopmental disability?
1: Well, A lot have had ADHD, and quite a few have um, FAS or FAS um, effects. Okay, Um, I see. Twenty-two years ago, you know, a lot has changed through the years, but I think the biggest, the biggest issue or the hardest thing for foster parents is not knowing when we get these kids Mm. what sometimes yeah. they have and sometimes in fairness the social workers and the parents don't even know sure um and so sometimes we're faced with trying to get them in for assessments mm-hmm. which is hard um like I was telling Tracy a little while ago when as so the difference being um regular foster care at that point um the, usually the social worker has a little bit more info about the family by that point. Okay, sure. Emergency shelter, the kids have just been picked up by the police mm-hmm. or they've just gotten a court order and they're removed from home or school mm-hmm. and they come to Saint Joe's and then to our home. So oftentimes very little is known about their background or what you know, what issues they might have. I see. Um so it a little bit different with the emergency shelter. Um it unfortunately takes sometimes three to four months to get the kids in to be assessed mm-hmm. for psychiatry, um, you know, all of the behavior, um, mm-hmm. all of those issues. It's, it's hard sometimes because there is a waiting period before we can get the kids assessed. Yeah, sure. And, and in that time period, often there's no meds. So we're oh, dealing really? with. Wow. Well, sometimes they've had meds, but they're mm-hmm. not up to date with them. Oh, so I they see. don't come in with them um, so then you have to try to make an appointment to find out where they've been seen in the past yeah. if they have to go through a new assessment to get their meds again um, so just a lot involved that sometimes we're dealing with um, kids with a lot of issues that we don't have a lot of support for
0: yeah sounds like it that's man that's tough <laughs> it, that's, it can be
1: yeah um, in an emergency shelter um, I would sometimes have six kids at a time, sometimes up to eight kids. So I ran—this last year I've mm-hmm. been taking a break, but I would, you know, have a full house of kids. And so if you've got one or two that are really disrupting, that can be really hard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure there's, you know, the kids might have some fear around, you know, if do I tell this person that I have ADHD? Even if they know, you know, they might be— um like nervous or maybe afraid that you won't have them anymore you know that could be a fear
1: all kinds of things so um through the years we've taken um uh, years ago i took babies and so i picked up newborns from the hospital Mm -hmm. Um, could be you know two three days old Mm -hmm. and i've taken kids up to age 18 yeah so all the different ages all different um you know both boys and girls um these kids are coming from, for the most part, a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. So we see a lot of trauma-based um, things. Eighty um, percent of the kids we've had in our home have a parent that's addicted to drugs and or alcohol. Okay. And often because of that addiction comes the neglect, mm-hmm. not getting kids to school, not getting them to doctor appointments. Mm. Um, oftentimes comes the uh, physical abuse mm. when they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, unfortunately, or really sad, is the sexual abuse that we, we've seen with a lot of kids through the years mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. mom's got different boyfriends coming in and out of the home.
0: Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. And
1: those, unfortunately, sometimes those prey on the, the younger girls. Yeah. we've well and boys but. yeah so those are the hard issues that yeah you're just trying to when when we get kids for you know two three months we're just trying to give them a little stability right showing them what life can be like mm-hmm. in a non well I always called our home a controlled chaos <laughs> <laughs> when you have six kids or four kids you know you're going to have it's some still, chaos right <laughs> but it's, it's controlled chaos sure we get kids that some of them have never had a bed to sleep in. Mm. Some of them have had a mattress on the floor that six people sleep on. Sure. Um, A lot of them have never had a table to sit at. Mm -hmm. Um, Just basic things that we've grown up with, Mm -hmm. or a lot of us have, that these kids haven't had. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot of teaching. and, And in the shelter, emergency care is where we see most of that. Mm-hmm. Because then by the time they leave our home and go to a regular foster home or mm-hmm. go to a relative, mm-hmm. they've had that time to at least get used to those those things. Right. Um, yeah. I think the biggest thing that we've seen through the years, so most of the, not most, but many of the kids have ADHD. Okay. And then quite a few through the years have um, fetal alcohol mm-hmm. um, syndrome. And that's one of the hardest ones to deal with.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I'm still in contact with one of our probably second, place, third placement we had back 20-some years ago. Oh, we're really? Two little okay. girls, and the youngest one was five. I think they were five and seven. The seven-year-old had a heart condition, so she had a hole in her heart. So mm-hmm. we were doing a lot of doctoring for that. Mm-hmm. And then the youngest one um, had fetal alcohol. And okay. So, you know, those... Mm. One, two, three step directions, they Mm -hmm. don't work. You have to do one step directions, one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The brain is just wired differently, and Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of repetitive. But those are things that I had to learn. I mean, well, I knew some of that from my background, but there was no one there to immediately tell us, this is how you're going to need to foster this child.
0: Right, right. And... I'm sure each child with, you know, you could put two children next to each other that both are on the spectrum, but because it's a spectrum, it's just, it's Correct. going to look so different. Correct. So, well, and yeah.
1: actually with that little one, it had me telling the worker, hey, this kiddo needs to be tested for this because I believe mm. she's got this. Okay. And it took me calling up the U and coming to see Dr. Chang way back then mm. to have her assessed.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So a lot of yeah. it is foster parents have to do a lot of, we're, we're the advocate for the kiddo. Absolutely. Um, oftentimes, social workers are so busy with so many cases, mm-hmm. they just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's we, we welcome that whenever, you know, any extra <laughs> hands to help.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing that you still keep in touch with both. You said both of the girls, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. That's awesome. Well, you know, when... And yeah, I, I can understand you had said that um, fetal alcohol syndrome and that whole spectrum, um, how that can be the most challenging, and I I can very much understand that with um, just having worked with some kids in the past who have who have that diagnosis, and um, you know you don't you don't ever want to think of the kids like just their, as just their diagnosis, but that one really does. I mean, it does really influence their ability. To learn, to focus, to, I, I believe also, um, like, if they're overstimulated, you know, that can be something that makes um, dysregulated behaviors come to play. So I can I can see how that could be hard,
1: yeah. And now, those two little girls, they actually ended up getting adopted. And, oh, that's awesome. Um, unfortunately, the parents that adopted them, and I think two or three other girls at the time, the adopted father turned out to be a sexual abuser. Oh no! Oh so gosh! So they were ripped from that home, wow. and then adopted by another family eventually up north. But so, even and they both came from one of the the Bloomington police at the time. It said it was the worst incest oh. history they had ever seen.
0: Oh no! Okay. So unfortunately oh. for
1: those kiddos, they were with us for probably. I don't know, maybe six months before Mm -hmm. they move to a a possible adoptive home, and then that's that adopted home that did all of that. Okay. So no, it's it's oftentimes a lot of um, sadness that goes along with this journey. Mm -hmm. The youngest is now twenty six. Okay. And I think she's had. I don't know, maybe three babies of her own who have okay. all been taken from her and all placed for adoption, and they all have special needs.
0: Okay, okay. So it's, it's so unfortunately, often... Unfortunately, the cycle has repeated there. It's and, often yeah.
1: generations that it doesn't get fixed.
0: That's hard. That's really Very hard. hard. Yeah. Very hard. Yeah, and, you know, in the disability community, people are all, you know, I don't want to think of them as fragile by any means because... They're not fragile. They're very strong and resilient. But it is a population that I feel like, unfortunately, gets taken advantage of more seriously. And if you have something that really, like if you have um, something that's disrupting your cognitive thinking, um, it makes you even more vulnerable because you think, oh, this is normal or this is supposed to happen. Or, you know, my foster parents or my adoptive parents, they do this because they love me. But it's, you know, unfortunate when... It's not. It's things like abuse and neglect that just get repeated over and over again. And a lot of these
1: kids have gone through so many years of abuse that to them, that's normal. Mm, Okay. Wow. And even if they have a a bio mom or dad that's, you know, abusing them, they don't, that's all they've ever known. Mm -hmm. So to them, that's normal. Mm -hmm. Or that's, you know, what they've grown up with and they don't want to be yanked away from that, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, the system is out to help them in trying to, you know, protect them. They don't see it as that.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder what, like, the system, the child welfare system in general can do to help with making, you know, cases more proactive instead of reactive. Because it sounds like they're not as, uh, with not being aware of a neurodevelopmental disability, um, it can really put kids in such greater risk, and then it's reactive because it's like, oh, we got to remove and then place again or figure out another situation. Well, the hardest part
1: with fetal alcohol is that usually the mother does not want to admit that she was using alcohol during her pregnancy. Mm, I see. The shame. The shame Sensei. of it okay. that, Um so you're not going to get a mom waving her hand going, hey, my kiddo needs help because I was using alcohol when I was pregnant with him or her. Yeah. Now they have this brain disorder and I need help because of this. Mm-hmm. It's usually more, from what I've seen, more more lying about, no, I wasn't using or, oh, maybe just a couple of times. Mm. I see. Yeah, that's so a So no, really good a lot point. of those kids don't get brought to light right away.
0: Mm-hmm. That's such a
1: good point you bring up. Um, I think kids with, you had mentioned before, like autism, I think those kids are identified sooner, mm-hmm. and I'm I think sure. help is um, given to them sooner mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It's, it's more, well, it's nothing that the, it, it's not perceived as something that the mother did mm-hmm. that was wrong, mm-hmm. this child was, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so they're more able to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I think help is quicker to be given through different, you know, different agencies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Less stigma, less shame um, makes it a lot easier to ask for help. So absolutely. Have you by chance worked with, so with the kids with like ADHD and I mean, and fetal alcohol syndrome, do you work a lot with the teachers then as a foster parent?
1: Um, Yes. Um so when kids were with us long term, they would actually move into our school district. Okay. Um and yes, then I had a much closer rapport with the teachers um in our own um city. With shelter kids, emergency shelter, we get the kids back to their home school. Oh, I see. Okay. So we keep them at their home school. Um, just for the continuity of their teacher and their friends. We're trying to make it as easy as possible for them. Mm -hmm. We don't want them to have to move schools. Um, But then we have a little bit less contact with the teacher and and knowing that it's just short-term. It could be a month that we have them. It could be just two months or it could be a couple of weeks. Um, But the kids with ADHD... A lot of those kids have a lot of the behaviors in the school that is hard, mm-hmm. and we get a lot of, I get a lot of calls from behavioral specialists, especially in Minneapolis schools, that they, they don't know what to do with the kids, mm. and the kids act up and um, fighting, kicking, and, and, and so they're usually asking me what to do. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Even sure. though they might have had them for a couple of years, yeah. and I've only had them for, you know, sometimes a few weeks uh-huh. or a month. Um, so we, I try to work with them to try to, you know, come up with different things that we can um, follow through at home also with, you know, whatever they're trying to accomplish at school. Sure. But, but that seems to be the biggest issue right now that okay. we see in a lot of schools, mm-hmm. that the behaviors have gotten out of hand and the teachers and the behavioral specialists don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. A lot of these kids' reward programs don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've had a lot of kids that, you know, seven, eight, nine years old and... They get suspended from school.
2: Oh, no. Okay. Um,
1: could be one day, two days, three days. I had a little boy last year that seven years old. I think he was in first or second grade. And he had hit a teacher, which okay. was an automatic three-day suspension.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. And
1: for a little kid like that, to him, that was a reward mm-hmm. to stay home from school because yeah. he didn't like school. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, so I often will ask for it in school suspension. But usually teachers and the principals say, well, we don't have the manpower for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. Um, you know, thinking, just thinking about, like, the schools that I have worked with in the past as far as, like, communicating with teachers. Like some of these classrooms have, you know, thirty children. Correct. And I can't imagine <laughs> how nerve wracking that would be for a teacher.
1: I think we need to get more um, knowledge to the behavioral specialists. Mm-hmm. Give them more tools to work with these kids mm-hmm. because it's not going away. The yeah. problem is increasing, not decreasing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it does, for a lot of kids, it feels like a reward. So that makes sense. Most kids, it's Mm -hmm. a huge
1: reward. They get to stay home. They don't have to go to school. They don't have to, you know, do any work, Mm -hmm. which is often hard for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Pushes them, can push them behind. And then when they are back at school, make them feel left out that they're not at the same level of their peers. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, um, I mean, as an emergency foster parent and just a foster parent in general, that is a lot of things to try to um, advocate for in all the systems you're advocating for for your child for an amount of time you don't know you'll have them.
1: Correct. And a lot of these kids do not come in with an IEP, but then we're Mm -hmm. advocating to get them assessed for an IEP as quickly as possible. Right. And a lot of schools don't want to do that.
0: Oh, okay, Sure.
1: So Mm -hmm. you need to... uh, yeah. A lot of schools, you really have to push them to. No, we need to have this child assessed and see what's going on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do I wonder if it's like they're afraid of the label that a disability or a diagnosis could put on the kid? No.
1: Or? If if the if the child has an IEP, it means they need more help, which mm-hmm. means more paras in the classrooms, more money going out for that. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, it's it's a money issue.
0: Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah.
1: But yeah. it has to come down to the kids. Mm-hmm. It has to be about the child that needs the help, getting the help.
0: Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. For, the, for kids, too, so, like, we talked a little bit now about schools. As far as, like, what the um, county does to also support foster parents, do they do, um, and I know it might be different in emergency cases, but do you ever, like, work with the social worker pretty closely that is working with the child, or is it because their caseloads are so... Well, we hope
1: to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the, that's the ultimate goal is to, you know, have a caseworker that can work alongside us. Mm-hmm. Um, I often encourage the the social worker to be the one at those IEP meetings or, you know, helping with the school social worker being that contact, because as a shelter home, I'm only on for a short time, mm-hmm. where the social worker... The Hennepin County worker would be there for long term mm-hmm. until the child either is adopted or going back to the home.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what kind of resources um, do the caseworkers, social workers, do for kids with disabilities that you've seen so far?
1: I think the biggest thing is just trying to get them appointments to get the help that they need.
0: Uh, like medical appointments mostly?
1: Medical, um, being assessed by... Um you know, for the behavioral needs. hmm
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Um and I'm sure too, like you're trying to behind the scenes do some stuff too about like, where can I take this kid? Or like what what will this kid need, or what exactly can I like request from the caseworker that this kid gets more of or less of, probably a case by case basis. Correct. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Um well, there's a lot of things that we (laughs) have just covered and heavy loaded stuff. And, you know, it does make me think about it because in, you know, in graduate school here as a social work graduate student, we just talk so much about how broken the systems are. And I, um, you know, I have friends who are, they're 4E fellows. So they're working with um, different counties in the child welfare system. And I hear from them a lot too, just about how broken The system is, and we don't talk at all in our classes really about disability and how it intersects, but then hearing your perspective, it's just been so much, so eye-opening, you know, to hear from from a foster parent, this is what's going well, this is what is not going well, this is what foster parents need more of. Um, I am wondering from you, though, like, if you had any advice for um, social workers who are working with kiddos in the child welfare system with a disability, what advice or what would you tell them that would be helpful for for them to hear from a foster parent perspective?
1: I think just supporting the foster parent and foster family as much as they can. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming as a foster parent that you feel like you're doing this all by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that's not the case, but it feels that way. Sometimes these kids, you know, depending on the social worker, sometimes they might see them once a month mm-hmm. um, and you know if they've got twenty cases and you know that could be forty kids, it's a lot of kids to to keep track of mm-hmm. um, but so sometimes just just knowing that they're there to help when they need or when we need them mm-hmm. is a is a huge thing um I think as foster parents, like Hennepin County, um, they do a lot of trainings. Okay. Um, Some of this is just kind of learned on the job, though. Yeah. Um, I know I I saw a statistic recently that um, across the country of the U.S., 50% of foster parents that have been licensed do not renew their license a year after. Oh, Okay. So 50% for whatever wow. reason. Now, some of those might be relative foster placements. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe that child went back home and they didn't need to keep their license. Sure. But I think some of those are ones that, you know, foster parents sometimes get into this, not for the wrong reason, but they think it's going to be easy and they're just going to have these little babies to love or, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't realize all of the the extra, the work and, you know, it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tough. It's, it, it's probably the toughest job you'd ever have as a foster parent.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I can. I could totally see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of emotional labor, um, time. I'm sure there's hours of sleep that are lost.
1: Oh, oh my! So, yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, you you did mention too in that that there's, like, some training that goes on. Would you mind speaking about what well, that training looks like?
1: So for um, in the state of Minnesota, and I think it's probably similar around the, the, the country, um, we have to have 12 hours of training every year. Okay. One hour has to be of mental health training, and one hour has to be for um, fetal alcohol. Um, every five years we have to do a comprehensive SIDS and car seat training. Okay. If we're going to take care of little ones, mm-hmm. could you tell everyone what SIDS means? SIDS is when you know they unexpectedly die in the crib. Oh, sudden
0: infant Grr, death, death, death right Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like some very valuable training at oh, least yeah. is going on yeah. behind the scenes yeah. there. So oh, yeah. Yeah, and the process for applying to be a foster parent is it pretty extensive or what does that look like?
1: Oh. <laughs> um, shouldn't get me started on that one. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, I, I think like in anything, you get people that sign up for it that have no no right to be. It.
0: Okay, that's um, fair.
1: Yeah. To become a foster parent, you need to have a stable living situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you can rent or you can own. A home or apartment. Okay. Um, basically, you're being, a background check is being done. Mm-hmm. And if your background is clear, if you don't have mental health issues of your own, mm-hmm. if you've been, um, they like to see that you haven't had like a, a major, like a death in the family or, okay. you know, something major in the last year or two. Okay. Um, you can't have, um, you can't be like going through. Um, treatment for you know alcoholism at the time that mm-hmm. has to be something in the past mm-hmm. um but otherwise, pretty much anyone can get licensed to be a foster parent, okay, which okay. yes, we always need foster parents, but we need good foster parents
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um and i I think through the years there's been a lot of people licensed that shouldn't have been,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. That's fair. That's totally fair. Um, you know, unfortunately, we hear some pretty sad stuff in the news, too, Very about sad. foster parents yep. taking advantage of kids and, you know, thinking about, like, kids with a disability, again, just how vulnerable they are. Correct. It's so heartbreaking to hear
1: that. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and the background, I mean, when a licensing worker licenses a home, Obviously, there's a little bit more to it that they're meeting with the the family, uh, they're meeting with the parent, whatever, whoever is doing the foster care. Um, but y- you know, if the if the right boxes get checked, mm-hmm. they're going to be a foster parent. I see. And a lot of times, they just don't have. I, I've seen way too many people go into it with uh, rosy colored glasses that think everything's mm-hmm. just going to be, you know perfect and mm-hmm. then they end up getting mad at the system they get they say the system's broken they get mad at the social workers mm-hmm. because it's not what they expected
0: mm. okay
1: and, and it see. is it's like i said it's the hardest job you'll ever do yeah taking yeah. in the kids that coming from backgrounds that you don't know anything about coming from all that trauma mm-hmm. and just you're loving the, the kids as as best you can and um, it's it's tough.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: We had a tough case a few years ago. Four kids came in, and the oldest was a teenager, about 15, and the youngest was three. Oh, okay. And they were just removed from their parents' home uh, very abruptly because a three-year-old foster child had died in their home. Oh, no. And... Um, it turned out that they, the parents were actually doing relative foster care for a three- and five-year-old okay. that were niece and nephew to them, mm. so these kids' cousins.
0: Oh, okay. Wow.
1: And that had to be one of the hardest cases I've had, dealing with these kids coming from that trauma of knowing that child had just died in their home. And knowing that the parents were probably going to be indicted and prosecuted for the death of that child. Yeah. And yeah. when you've got a 15-year-old knowing somewhat what's going on, but not knowing how the system works. Yeah. And they were with us for probably four months, a little bit longer than normal, Um and the oldest had um, all the kids were on meds, but mm-hmm. the oldest had um,
0: panic attacks, oh, okay, anxiety. Oh. Understandable, right? Totally yes,
1: understandable. yes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, she came though with all of that already being diagnosed as having that.
0: Ah, uh, okay.
1: And oh. um,
0: probably just exacerbated everything then too.
1: Yes, all that change um, trauma. I remember sitting on the bathroom floor with her as she was having a panic attack and trying to help her, you know, talk through it. Mm -hmm. Um, Myself knowing that the parents were probably going to be arrested but not knowing when and not knowing for sure. It was just a really tough situation. Yeah. Really tough. Um, Two years later, the parents were both Just sentenced. I think the mom to like thirty years and the dad for twelve or fifteen years. Okay. Um, Fortunately, the parent. These kids are now with their grandparents. Okay. And hopefully, they can heal and start to move on. But Mm -hmm. long, Mm -hmm. long process. Two years for kids not to know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Anyways, you know that that it's not a typical, but.
2: You happens. know, it yeah. happens.
1: Mm-hmm. One of my hard. one of my um, a story from probably 15 years ago. I had a little oh, let's see, little girl was probably three, and the boy was maybe five, and their baby sister was in the hospital because she had been shaken,
2: mm.
1: and they didn't know if she would survive, and they didn't know if it was the mom or dad. Okay, And so they pulled the kids, and I had them with me. And we were downtown driving to an appointment, and one of them asked about my parents. And both of my parents had just recently died within seven months of each other. And I Mm -hmm. just said, my mom's up in heaven. And they were just asking a couple questions. And Mm -hmm. we got home, and I had a call from their social worker that their mother had just died the night before in her sleep. Oh, I think of like a heart attack or something. Oh, no. I, I don't remember the exact. Okay. But so I've got these little kids that I need to break the news to. Mm-hmm. I, I and I don't even remember at the time. I kind of think I asked the social worker to come out and talk with me. Yeah. To, to You're talk not to alone the kids, doing that. right? Mm-hmm. Right. I don't like to do those things alone. I would rather have the support of ongoing, you know, worker with the kids. Mm-hmm. But um, that was quite the moment that having to say. You know, your mom died, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, at that point, the, they had some faith in their family and saying that, you know, she was in, in heaven. Okay. Um, but that was
0: mm-hmm. one
1: mm-hmm. of those you go, oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah. Yeah, as a foster parent, you know, you have to be ready to
1: deal with really Really,
0: anything. They're your kids, you know.
1: Yeah. They're your kids, so. And I get a lot yeah. with the teenage girls where I get a call from school or, Social worker saying, hey, I hear they're going to they they've been telling people they're going to kill themselves. Mm, mm-hmm. So I have to go have that conversation that, hey, you know, you're special. You're loved. I know it's hard right now. You know, we have to make a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the crisis team involved, too, with, with that then to mm-hmm. to make sure that there's a plan that they're not going to kill themselves. hmm. And most of the time they say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, someone just blew that out of proportion. Mm-hmm. But we have to have that conversation, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like in, like, if you're not, if, if you go into, you know, parenthood in general without thinking that that's, that couldn't be a conversation, that's, right. you know, it's a really um, heavy awakening. So. Right.
1: right. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Absolutely. So foster care is not for the faint of heart, is what you're saying. It is not.
1: It is not. Yeah. And and the parents that go into it and think that you know it's these kids are just gonna love you unconditionally. No, they're not. not. (laughs) They've been you know ripped from what they perceived as love from their parents, and and these parents did they do love them, Mm -hmm. but it's just all this other messiness that goes with it. Yeah, yeah. And Mm -hmm. the biggest thing that we can, I mean through the years too. Oh, so many visits we've had. So the, the ultimate goal is always reunification, Mm -hmm. always reunification, Mm -hmm. unless the parents are in prison, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. they always want to reunify. And that's hard as foster parents to watch because they see the parent, you know, falling time after time, after time. And, not you know, not showing up for visits, and the kids mm-hmm. just being brokenhearted, and mm-hmm. and you still have to keep dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's probably the hardest part is when parents don't show up for visits, and you've got these crying mm-hmm. kids. Yeah, and you yeah. have to tell them, you know, I know your mom and dad, or whoever it is, I know they love you. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't be here for whatever reason today.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but they and still that's so need hard. they
1: need to know that that the parents. You know, even if they're strung out, if they just OD'd, whatever, that parent still loves them, but they've got a lot of stuff that they have to work on before they can get reunified.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's always good to, like you said, the goal is reunification. And as long as, maybe as long as the kids know that too, that can give them some faith, right? Well,
1: but that's a tricky part too, because it doesn't always happen. Yeah, sure. So Mm -hmm. it's that fine line of, yes, this is what we're working towards. But at the same time, most social workers have to have a plan B mm-hmm. of if that doesn't happen, where are these kids going to go for permanency? Because mm-hmm. permanency is always the, you know, the very end goal. Right. And we've, you know, through the years, we've had a handful of times where they've been ready to move back to the parents and literally all packed up and ready to go mm-hmm. and sometimes in the car to go back to the parents and the parent has taken off.
0: Oh, okay. I see. So they, hard. They can't
1: handle it. They're just like, nope, I'm not going to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Yeah. Well, you know, this, <laughs> everything you're describing, really, I'm not trying to laugh, but it's no! just, it's interesting how like, you know, foster care and how messy everything can be for the kids, everyone involved. It's such a, like, um, a mirror to to what needs to happen to make just society a more...
1: And it's it's easy for for everyone to say the system's broken. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do about it is the other question, I suppose. Correct.
1: Yeah. How are we going to help these kids and these parents? Uh, Ultimately, it comes down to the parents, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. helping them with whatever they're dealing so they can be better parents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know in, you know, in school we talk a lot about like the family unit and how when you know, families always try to maintain homeostasis. That could either be from a healthy perspective where, you know, there's, like, a stable routine and house and parents with a job and kids in school. Or it could be even parents who are, um, you know, struggling with addiction and the kids think that when, you know, mom or dad are, like, you know, high or doing something else with drugs, that that's considered homeostasis. And even if they're away from any of that, it's so... um, just jarring for the kids to not have that and to help families maintain a homeostasis. I think that would be in a more, um, healthy way for every, all people involved in the unit. Yeah. What, what do we do? How do we, how do we keep that unit homeostasis? It's hard to know. It's really hard to know.
1: I would love to see more, um, facilities, shelters for, um, Especially moms that are dealing with substance Mm -hmm. problems where they can bring their kids with them Mm -hmm. as they're working through these, you know, treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times, you know, it's hard for the kids. They they go through a lot of trauma when they're taken away from home, Mm -hmm. even though home wasn't good.
0: (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Um, Yeah.
1: And then the other big piece that we're seeing that we haven't even really touched on is, is all the mental health. Mm-hmm. that's another huge issue with a lot of these kids coming through mm-hmm. is the mental health issues yeah and more need for residential treatment and day treatment and mm-hmm. schools not being able to handle them and the parents can't handle them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. do they talk any time in the screening process about disability
1: you know, I it's been 22 years since I've gone through that, so I can't tell you. <laughs> um I, I'm not sure. I don't Okay. They would be telling people that yes, there's a lot of different things going on with these kids, but I don't even know if the licensing worker or workers know everything that could be going on with these kids. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yep. It I I hear what you're saying. Um so it sounds like, you know, they do talk about how, like, the trauma that kids that, that kids who are in foster care come with. However, what that actually presents like in the moment. Right. Well, I was just gray thinking, areas. As, you know,
1: <laughs> book knowledge mm-hmm. is totally different than actual reality when you're, you know, actually in the midst of it, when you're in the throes of taking care of these kids. Sure. Yeah. And so you're trying to think of all the things you've learned and how are you going to. And, and a lot of foster fam- families have kids of their own. So they're trying to juggle everything, mm-hmm. trying to help these kids, but still trying to protect their own kids and trying mm-hmm. to mash a whole family together. And mm-hmm. it's not easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is a lot to balance. And to, you know, also teaching your own kids, like, this is how... Um, you know other people's families, how this shows up in their in their children, and you know we want to welcome them. We don't want to be afraid of them. Well, and having those conversations. And
1: you're, it's important for foster kids to know that they're part of your family. They don't want to be separated from your family. They want to be treated like your kids. So that's the part of behind the scenes that they can't always see that you're still giving your own kids. letting them know that, you know, they are very special. They're, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know how to say that, but, yeah. you know. Um,
0: you talk to them like you would with with your children. Is right, right. Is that what you're saying? Um,
1: well, it's it just the fine line of, yes, you are now part of our family. It's just short term, but you're not telling them that because you don't know how long it's going to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I think that's the biggest thing you'll hear from foster kids through the years that, Yeah, this family took me in, but they didn't treat me like they treated their own kids. They treated their own kids differently. Ah, I see. They gave them things they didn't give me. I see. And that's where you have to be, not secretive, but you have to be smart in how you still, you know, because these kids are going to be gone in however long, usually.
0: Yeah. You would hope that they're reunified, right? right. right? You're you're working towards reunification.
1: Mm -hmm. But so you're, you're... it just it's it's tricky. Absolutely, um, our very first placement was just a short term um, little girl who turned one when she was with us. Her name was Kelly, mm. and I'll never forget taking that very first little girl <laughs> and thinking, "Oh my gosh!" You know, looking around like, are, "Are you kidding? You just placed this one, you know, little girl with me?" You know, mm-hmm. like, "Where's her family?" Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew, but it was just <laughs> still that odd, you know, sensation of. I'm taking care of this little girl. Yeah, um, yeah. And then our next placement was two little boys that, um, so our daughter was three and our son was seven, and these two boys came in to our home, and the one little boy was four and the other one was six, so right in between our two.
0: Okay.
1: And um, probably a month into it, real real soon on, um, they were all watching her playing. I think they were watching a movie in our den, which was right next to our kitchen. And our little daughter was sitting in a chair. And the four-year-old boy decided he wanted her chair. Mm. But she <laughs> didn't want to move. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like that. And he went and he actually took a shoelace out of one of his shoes. And he came up from behind her in trying to strangle her.
0: Oh no, that's scary and
1: actually left a mark on her neck. Oh. And fortunately our older son was right there to, you know, Mom mm-hmm. and and, you know, chaos of course ensued And in to stop him though from from doing that. Mm-hmm. But she actually had like a, a rope burn on her neck that I still have a picture of to these da- to this day. Wow. But it was my immediate wake up call that these kids have gone through so much they they need Supervision 24-7. Yeah. And that's the other hard part that a lot of foster parents don't realize, and it takes an immediate wake-up call to go, whoa, I can't leave these kids alone at all. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why that we, uh, through the years, um, most social workers or most licensing workers, most systems will tell you have kids younger than your own kids. Okay. Your kids should be the oldest ones as you're doing the foster care. Not always true, but for the most part just so that they can protect themselves if they need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was one of my first wake-up calls. Of, Whoa, you're yeah. trying to hurt my kiddo, you yeah. know? Yeah,
0: yeah. That would be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure you handled it gracefully, but that would what? be terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, we ended up having those two for, call close to a year, and then they were reunified with an aunt out in, like, Washington, and that fell apart, and they came back to our home. And then they are actually adopted by um, some neighbors of ours. Okay. So it's been interesting watching them. They're they're both in their mid twenties now. Okay. A long time ago. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, no, those things you remember. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I so appreciate hearing your you know your personal stories too yeah. and your experiences. Um, just because you know it's it's one thing like you said the book is book. different than right. person knowledge. And honestly, when when I have been thinking about how um you know the child welfare system how it does intersect or not intersect with disability it sounds like it doesn't intersect enough is what i'm how i'm interpreting um the content from this conversation and i would be really curious just to hear from you like what like what future questions should we be asking then to social workers about like what what do we do like how should we do this differently
1: I don't know if you'd get any answers. Um, Most social workers are, I don't want to say struggling, but they're trying to stay above water. Mm -hmm. Um, Most counties are trying to keep the caseloads as low as they can. Yeah, Um, I know that's been a big one in Hennepin County that, you know, for a time caseloads were 20, 20 cases per, and that's just too many. So they've tried to get them down to like 12 um, so it's manageable, because I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a social work is um, social workers. It's a high burnout job.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, uh, mm-hmm.
1: you know, you're,
0: and we can see why now yeah. after just hearing yeah.
1: your I anecdotes
0: mean, here.
1: So, social workers are dealing with, you know, they're trying to help all of these kids mm-hmm. and the families and the foster care families, mm-hmm. and oftentimes it feels like it's all falling apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if they have, you know. 20 cases, you can imagine. It's just too much. Mm -hmm. I remember a couple years ago, I was, um, I had a social worker that had, he was new, um, just out of grad school, I think, or he'd only been in the field a couple years, and he started out, he told me he started off, so I'd had, I think, two cases with him, and I think he said he started off with 10 to 12 cases. Okay. The next time I saw him, he was up to 15 cases. And the last time I saw him, he told me he was done in two days because he was up to 19 cases, and he was overwhelmed, and he couldn't do it anymore.
0: Wow, yeah. And he
1: lasted a year.
0: Oh, my gosh. And and he was a great worker. Yeah, I'm sure. But he just, Mm -hmm. too much. Yeah. There's a lot of outstanding workers who just care tremendously. Right. And, yeah, when you're stretched so thin like that, I can't imagine.
1: Right, right. So I think it's just, you know, as a social worker, too, building a rapport with the foster home as much as you can to act as a team. Mm -hmm. You know, I I guess that would be the biggest thing I would say is a lot of times as a foster parent, you don't feel like you're part of the team. Mm. You feel like you're just taking care of the child and everyone expects you to do all of this, but they're not including you as part of the team. Myself. Mm -hmm. With my background, I inserted myself as part of the team, <laughs> sure, but a yeah. lot of parents don't do that and they don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. So I would say as a, as a social worker or a new social worker, you know, really appreciate that foster home Yeah, and tell them that you appreciate that foster home, you know, that mm-hmm. family and, and help with whatever ways you can as far as transportation and just, you know, being there to emotionally help that. Foster mom or dad too in any way they can, but Definitely. but mainly treating them as part of the team.
0: Definitely, yeah, that's amazing advice. And I think um, foster parents who are listening, or you know, who are people who are thinking about being foster parents, would also appreciate hearing that too. Right. It's like, okay, this is something I can do. I can advocate for myself, especially Correct. if if um, I mean disability or no disability present in your chi- in the child. Um, you know, you still want to know that, like, hey, I'm part of a team. We're all on this together. Right. As cheesy as that sounds, but, like, you (laughs) really are. You know, a lot of
1: times you don't hear much from the social worker through the years. You know, I've had cases where you don't hear a lot, and all of a sudden they're going to court, and they go to court, you know, multiple times, and you're not—sometimes you're invited—well, usually you could go if you want to, but sometimes you've got five kids at home and you can't go to court, Mm -hmm. and you're waiting to hear what happened in court, and you don't know what's going to happen, and— And you just feel like you're not part of the process and you feel like you're not, you know, you don't have a say in these kids' lives, which you don't. But at least if your input can be, you know, taken a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. um, Guardian ad litems are very important in foster care. I don't know if you've studied much on guardian ad litems. I personally have not. So a guardian ad litem is appointed by the court as a neutral party. Mm. So they, um, like Hennepin County, has some guardian ad litems that are uh, paid positions, and a lot of them are just volunteers. Okay. But they get to know the kids. They get to know the parent. And then they get to say to the judge, this is what we think should happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're vital for foster parents to be able to communicate with.
0: I could see that, definitely. Um, just having a neutral person involved right? For sure.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Through yeah. the years, a lot of us foster parents have blamed the judges when things don't go right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We, we see that a lot of times the social workers do their best to, you know, communicate to the court what should happen and what should not. And a lot of the times the judges, like in Hennepin County, judges are on, I think now it's a three-year, rotate, three-year rotation. Okay. So they go, you know, they might be in criminal court. They might be in family court. They might be in juvenile court. They might um, civil. And not of them, not a lot of them like this area of court. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of mm-hmm. times we get judges that, you know, if the kids are in care for a length of time, mm-hmm. sometimes the judges change. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're just looking at this on paper. Sure. Um, Sometimes they reunite before they should, and Mm -hmm. then the kids come back in the system, and that's not good for anyone. Right, right. Um, Yeah. But a lot of times we've seen that, you know, the social worker is doing everything they can, Yeah. but then you've got the county attorney involved, and you've got, you know, the the parents' attorneys, and they're all trying to, Mm. you know.
0: It's almost like too many cooks in the kitchen situation. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. But yeah, I hear you though. With like really listening to the foster parents, listening to what life well, has been like, and at it's home not too. listening to
1: us for what we want, but right. what we see as maybe best for the child, right? Absolutely. And how the mm-hmm. parent, how the child is reacting after visits. Mm-hmm. Visits are mm-hmm. tough. A lot of times, we see the really tough behaviors after visits.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So, that type of thing.
0: Can imagine that because you're saying hello and then you're saying goodbye (laughs) in such a short amount of time if you don't see them. So,
1: a lot of tears.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Gail, we like, and I say we, I mean, I know it's just me and you in the room, but I'm sure people who are listening, you know, like just greatly appreciate your your time, your energy, your, you know, the love that you put into all of your foster children. I mean, clearly it's gone. It's just gone so well because you've been doing it for so long. And well, it's it's been
1: quite the journey.
0: Rewarding, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, absolutely. And, uh, it's
1: you know we've we've loved doing it. It's a labor of love and it's um, hard work, but it's it's been awesome helping all these kids through the years.
0: For sure, for sure, and just hearing you speak to about like I said like really hearing you talk about the absence of disability with your with the kids um, it just brings up a lot of important things for all of all people involved to be wondering and thinking about what can we be doing to make this um, the system just more aware of disability and it it sounds like there are way more questions and answers
1: yeah and like I said you know we don't want to say that The system is broken, but just trying to figure out how to, you know, do the best for the kids, Mm -hmm. um, even though it is broken sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I received a a note on Facebook a few years back from a girl that um, was actually in college at the time, and she and her brother had been with us for a summer, three months, um, back um, when she was like 14 and the brother was like 11, and she sent me a message on Facebook that she was in college and doing really mm. well and that she, um, her English professor, they had a write assignment that they had to write about someone that had, that had made an impact in their life mm-hmm. and it couldn't be a relative. And she said, I immediately thought of you. Aww. And she said, I want you to know that... Um, in the three months we were with you, you gave me the childhood I never had. Oh. And it just, it was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly why we do what we do, you know? Mm-hmm. Just.
2: Oh. Um, that's so heartwarming. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's just stuff like that that we go, yep. This yeah. Is, this is why we're helping these kids on their journey. And yeah. it is, it's a journey. Yeah. And it, it's different seasons of life, different yeah. chapters. So if we can help these kids in this chapter of their life, hopefully someone else can, you know, continue with the next chapter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. That's <laughs> that's amazing. I bet that makes you feel like, you know, just so rejuvenated <laughs> when <laughs> we need that. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. Well, I'm just going to do a quick recap here then of our conversation. I know we've talked about a lot, so this is going to be, a you know, kind of a rough recap. But um, you know, really what, what we've been able to talk about and cover a lot is how disability does and does not show up in the screening process. How the kids, sounds like more often than not, don't even realize that they have a disability until they're living with foster parents. Sometimes. Um, and the people who are involved, like teachers, foster parents schools, um, or, well, I said teachers, but really like all people who work at a school with the kiddo also are feeling really stretched with knowing how to best support kids. Well, and
1: real quick, too, to add in there, oftentimes the schools aren't equipped because a lot of these families um, move so often that the kids switch schools so often.
0: Ah, I see. So Mm
1: -hmm. they fall between the cracks.
0: Mm. yeah.
1: That, yeah. you know, if they were in the same school for, you know, three, four years, obviously they would have probably caught it by then. But they're moving so often that they don't catch it. And off, that's, I've seen that oftentimes when the, the parent knows that the kiddo is struggling at school, they take them out of that school and put them in another school. I see. It's just they're coping.
0: I see. I see. And then
1: a lot of these parents don't have stable housing. Mm. And so they're moving from shelter to shelter oftentimes too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all great points to bring up, definitely. And
1: so it's just, yeah, yeah, it's a huge... <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like
0: poverty with right. child welfare, with disability, right. with education, <laughs> like all of those intersecting. Correct. And the more pieces that come together for intersecting, it just creates like a whole different. I mean, we could do like 20 different podcast so, you know, episodes it's on if, that too. If, if we could fix society so yeah. people didn't have
1: the drug and alcohol addictions, so they would have the stable housing, so they would have the stable job, so mm-hmm. you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. And it's uh, speaking of addiction, you know, with we also talked about um fetal alcohol syndrome and how the the shame still of really saying like, yeah, I was um drinking when I was pregnant and how that doesn't come out ever really in conversation, or at least not effortlessly, um, that can also be a reason why that doesn't get caught with kids a lot sooner for intervention.
1: Um, Well, I know, like, I've even, um, sometimes we've had kids where I've had to say to the social worker, you need to talk to the parent or to the mom and ask if she was using, Mm -hmm. but don't, you have to let her know that you're not accusing her of something. Mm -hmm. You just need to know to be able to help the child, Mm -hmm. because if you say, were you drinking their first response is going to be no,
0: right? Because mm-hmm. they think
1: they would be in trouble for doing that. Mm-hmm. So it has to be more of the back door coming in, saying, "Hey, we're noticing these things with you know this mm-hmm. your your child, and we're wondering if maybe you were using, mm-hmm. and if you were, I mean, obviously you don't want to say it's okay, but I mean, pretty much it's okay. We just need to you know know mm-hmm. how to help this kid now, mm-hmm. this kiddo.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah." great that's a really great point to add to and hearing about your experience with even knowing how to have that conversation is really important because yeah it's a tough conversation to have and right. if if you're going in with the intention of like this is going to be a non-judgmental thing but it, right. cu- it could easily come off that way right. right. so yeah loving loving the child loving their family as a whole um, and then Potentially also, I mean, we didn't really say this explicitly, but potentially educating more social workers on what disability looks like and neurodevelopmental disability with all of its, um, you know, implications with uh, cognitive functioning and um, even like muscle and nerve disorders and tics and you know those all of those really educating social workers more on what those look like and how those present so that they can also be part of the process of saying like hey we're noticing um these particular behaviors have you thought of this or i would you know recommend that you know your child gets referred for this particular screening and yeah, just training social workers in how to even approach that in a sensitive, non-judgmental way because there's nothing wrong, nothing right. wrong with them, but it does for sure need to be um, the door at least needs to be open to start having those conversations. Right. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gail, yeah, for taking time to talk, and you know we really appreciate it. And um, I just i I greatly appreciate hearing even like your personal stories too. It just brings so much more to the to the audience, to our learning, everything. So great, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Gail.